Welcome to the Best Coast Political Podcast with Jeremy Cardona and Matt Dell, joining you from unceded Coast Salish territory on this foggy Victoria afternoon. Hey Jeremy, how's it going today? Hi Matt, we have a podcast. I guess so. Well, not yet. We're starting one. We're 10 seconds in. We are 10 seconds in. I want to thank uh, listeners for joining us. This is our inaugural podcast and uh, we're trying to figure out how you have a podcast. Yeah, I've, it's been fun so far just getting all the, the gear and the technology sorted out, but I'm ready to dive into some issues because uh, I think the reason why we're doing this is a bit of a lack of discussion on some of the, the complex issues that we're facing in our society. That discussion has been you know reduced because of social media. It's becoming more polarized. Uh, but at the same time, the issues are becoming more complicated than ever, and you and I like to talk about this stuff on our own. And we thought, hey, why not have people who know what they're talking about and uh, make it a public conversation and try to try to build something that, you know, is intelligent uh, for people. That's right. We're trying to get out of the echo chamber here and have real political discourse on issues that people care about. So what you should expect with this podcast is a lot of well-informed guests, people like journalists, probably politicians, subject matter experts, activists, various people in the community who have their finger on the pulse of what's going on. So we're just starting to think about what kind of issues we want to address in this podcast. But we thought for episode number one, it makes sense to talk about this snap election. Yeah, that's right. That's coming up in six days, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been It's been such a rush with, this, with the snap election that there hasn't been a lot of time to think about it, really. What are the issues? And there hasn't been a great discussion of the issues that are facing, you know, where there's a lot of political jockeying going on. Um, but... Um, yeah, so we have our first guest who's going to be talking about that. But before we get into the guest who is going to be coming on air shortly, I think we just wanted to chat a little about who you are, who I am, and uh, why we have any sort of credibility to be hosting a podcast, which I'm not sure we do. But <laughs> and we're going to be welcoming we're going to be welcoming uh, journalist Richard Zussman from Global BC to the podcast shortly. But prior to that, yeah, I think it would be good maybe to just interview each other for a few minutes and let listeners know who we are. Sure. from the South Okanagan, um, rural BC, interior British Columbia, so that's a big part of my identity. Um, I really associate with that and, and the kind of lifestyle that that brought. I moved to Victoria quite a few years ago, 15, to attend UVic, and that's kind of where I was open up to a whole new world of politics, maybe with a more like real world hard politics. So I'm always trying to bridge, um, you know, politics and, and the political with the ideas and with the lifestyles that are, are so diverse around our province and which can often be forgotten about right you know especially you're talking about the echo chamber in victoria and vancouver which are tiny parts of our province and there's a whole other world out there that have that have different issues that are very important to people and mm-hmm. um yeah, it's, it's nice to recognize those so that's kind of the, the two worlds that i try to bridge um, now, of course, I, I'm in Victoria. I have two kids, so being a father and learning about how to raise kids is a, is a big is a big part of my life right now. Like you, um, I'm an environmentalist, concerned about climate change, which kind of casts this 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 uh, you know shadow over every everything that we're dealing dealing with in our life right now. Um, where you need to think about problems through that lens. So I think that's going to be a big theme of our of our podcast and uh, I'm also just really interested in, in local local politics and people who are trying to make a change and what change that is and how they go how they see the problems that we're dealing with and mm-hmm. where they see opportunities and um, I really just believe there's a lack of dialogue going on between candidates and the political process and social media 
um, exacerbates that. So hopefully we can kind of bring, bring a bit of a change to that. Yeah. But just bring it back to your own biography. Um, I know, I know that you're from the Osoyos area. Yeah. Did, did right. you grow up on a farm? Yeah, that's right. I grew up in Oliver and Osoyos in between the two towns. Um, I grew up in the middle of a big apple orchard. My grandparents has been far apple farmers there since the 19, maybe forties, late forties. Uh, so agricultural roots is a big part of part of my identity and something that I'm really interested in. It has a great connection to the climate issue um, and, and food security. So, um, yeah, I don't know what else to tell you about myself, really, other than, you know, that I'm a bit of a political junkie. I like uh, meeting people in Victoria. Um, I love the city. I love working for our community. I like building community. And I like discussing issues. And um, Well, maybe, maybe I could ask you how you first got interested in politics growing up. Yeah, how I got interested in politics. You know what? I don't think I have a really a really good answer to that. Um, I, I can't say it was very early, though. And I mean, I think it was probably, you know, my dad was a small business owner and my mom was a teacher. And there was a lot of pull between those two, um, you know, professions where my dad was really kind of looking out for, um, you know, how government could be making his business easier and helping his bottom line. We have mm-hmm. small, small, small business, a small town. It was not an easy go. And on the flip side, my mom, who was dealing with, you know, the education system and uh, lack of funding for students and, you know, students, especially in that town where they had a lot of social issues, a lot of poverty. And and maybe the pull between those two, my parents kind of got me thinking about what is the right answer here? And it's Mm -hmm. it's not easy. So uh, and of course, then just, you know, going to to, I went to two colleges, Langara and Camosin, where they had some really, you know, active political science professors. Mm -hmm. So. Perhaps that was that's how I got into it. Hmm. But let's switch over to you. Okay. Um, what's your background, Jeremy? You're, I know you have an interesting background as well. Yeah. Where do you come from? I come from Seattle. So I'm born and raised in, in the U.S. and had two parents that came from New York City. So I was raised by New Yorkers. My father's from uh, a very Sicilian American family from Brooklyn uh, with ties to mafioso figures and that sort of thing, like straight out of the Sopranos, my family is. Perfect. And then on the other side is um, my mother's family are uh, three generations of Irish American New York City police officers. So I have, and they're from Staten Island. So I've got that, I've got both sides of the Verrazano Bridge in me. And uh, they sort of fled New York in the late 70s and moved to Seattle. And so I was born there and raised there. And, um, and uh, eventually immigrated to Canada in 2007 after I had gotten my PhD in history from Johns Hopkins and I was just plugging away working on my dissertation and just on a lark applied for a job at the University of Alberta and was like extremely fortunate to get the first job that I'd ever applied for which was a tenure track position at the University of Alberta so my wife and I moved to Alberta lived there for several years and then eventually moved over to Victoria where I kind of left academia for a while I owned a business I owned a business called Share Organics and then got back into teaching part-time at UVic, and I've been doing various activities around town since then. Um, yeah. And how about politics? How did you first get yeah. involved in politics, or where does your interest of that come from? It actually goes back to high school, because I went, so I, I grew up at, in the north end of Seattle, and it was a very ethnically diverse part of Seattle. There was um, students of Asian background, black students, white students, um, not as many Latino students, but it's a pretty ethnically diverse community and in the late 90s there was some tension between the different ethnicities at our school and we had what was framed by the media as a race riot i think it was a bit overblown but it was it was like a pretty a pretty nasty fight that happened in the lunchroom basically a big 
um, like a food fight. And there's some other ethnic tensions at our school. And so myself, I was 16 years old at the time, myself and another student, this being the 90s and everyone wanted to talk about diversity, we, we created the diversity club. So at the age of 16, I was, I was in grade 10, I created the diversity club with another student. And every single lunch hour for like the entire year, we would get together in this big room with some supportive teachers, maybe 30 or 40 students, and we would just work out all these issues about race and inequality and wow. racial tension. That's pretty cool for high school. That was my kind of crash course in getting involved yeah. in, in politics. Yeah, American politics, definitely. A lot different than Canadian politics, but it's very intense, I can imagine. Very intense. I mean, very different here. I mean, that's why it's been interesting for me to, to, to follow the Black Lives Matter move, movement from Canada because um, it seems... Like the movement seems to make a lot of sense to me yeah. in the United States. I mean, for, for me here in Canada, I feel like our, our movement should be called Black and Indigenous Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, and I think for some people it has moved in that direction. But it has, uh, I agree. Yeah. Because if you look at the history of BC, I mean, the, the story of, of oppression really is between white settlers and Indigenous peoples mm -hmm. more so than Black community. Of course, there is a Black community and there has been for 150 years in BC. But the bigger story, I think, has been oppression towards Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, I want to ask you about music because yes. you and I play music together. And in fact, yeah. I hope listeners enjoy any music they hear on this podcast. All of it is recorded by Matt and I. We're both musicians. So I wanted to just like forget about politics for a minute and um, and ask you about music. How'd you get into music and what's your musical background? Um, yeah, music's another big part of my life that I've been playing since, since I was really a, a little kid. Uh, and I just, you know, it's funny. It's actually a good BC connection. What really got me into music was local BC bands when I was in high school. I fell in love like a lot of my friends with the BC punk music and indie music scene when I was quite young in my late teens. Uh, actually, the one of the first bands was a band called Money Shot from Victoria who came to my town. It was the first <laughs> real punk band I saw. And, you know, like when you see those kind of bands when you're in high school, it's just it's just a deep love that you can. I don't even think you can explain in later life. Mm. And, um, you know, that said, oh, I got to play in my first band. And so I was, you know, like a lot of other kids played in punk rock bands in my high school and got into promoting shows in my hometown and I really never stopped from there. I've been promoting and playing in bands ever since. And same thing. I've just really loved the local BC music scene. I mean, I'm not going to claim it has the best bands ever, but there is something about um, being close to the musicians and the artists that are playing and, and supporting people from your own town and just, just, that direct connection to the individuals and the music, which you never get with people who are at that next level where you're watching them from a big stadium or whatnot. Um, so that's something that I, you know, I hope to carry on for the rest of my life. And is, I mean, one of the reasons I met you and, and it's just a nice way to meet a lot of people. Like we've both met a lot of friends through totally. the music scene. Um, it's a big part of my just, life too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just something now I'm, I'm more doing it for, you know, just the connection to people as we're getting older, being, having those connections is a, is a bit more challenging. And I've met a lot of your friends who are all awesome people. And, and, um, what's the biggest show you ever played? The biggest show I ever played um, I don't know. I've never played huge shows, maybe 500 people. That kind of, that kind of realm was about the biggest that I've ever tell played. Tell us a story. Um, tell us a story. Tell, well, tell us the story. I, yeah, I don't, I don't have any specific stories offhand. I mean, no, I mean of the, of the biggest show you played. I think my favorite show that I ever played was, was co-headlining the song and surf music festival in 2016, I believe, or it was early 2017. And that was a time with my band Croatia. Um, who was kind of we were right at the peak of of doing doing our best, and we got asked to open for 
a band called Japanese Girls who have switched their name to Hotel Mira, and we got asked to co-headline co the song and surf, which I've never been to. It's in Port Renfrew. Awesome. I've, yeah, I've heard of it. I've and uh, it's this kind of daytime festival where there's lots of acoustic stuff, but at night they open up the big hall in Port Renfrew to about 400 people, mm -hmm. and it's just like an indoor winter rave that's just absolutely jam-packed, steam coming off everybody, and you know, by the time that we played, it was probably about 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night. It was Perfect. just fully buck wild. And, uh, you know, it's Such just, awesome it's just, experience. it was just fantastic. And we played dance music. So I remember just looking out to this, it's a pretty big room, 400 people in a community center is a lot. Yeah. And they're all adults just having the time of their lives. And a lot of my friends were there and awesome. that was definitely that, that was a highlight. So I really liked those kind of festivals. I mean, yeah, hopefully we can maybe talk a bit of music on the podcast. I, I mean, love I to talk music, man. There's a lot of challenges with the local music scene in, in Victoria, whether it be venue loss or funding for artists or, or the challenge of finding rehearsal space or all those things or the challenge, you know, music is switching from a more acoustic organic style to electronic style, which I think there's a bit of a loss of sometimes a direct connection there. You maybe have a bit more people sitting at home on their laptop rather than the pandemic's going to exacerbate that too. Cause like now it's just all you know, recording at home with electronic music. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, hopefully we can add, take a little bit of, um, kind of music and get some musicians and some of the music advocates in here because we, that's another issue that's not talked about. That's not being talked about in the election at all. It's and, music. Yeah. <laughs> music venues. And of course, why won't the politicians finally address the big issue of local music? Yeah. And you know, we've talked about that before. Like maybe is there, is there room for publicly owned, um, art spaces, rehearsal yeah, spaces? Great idea. Um, as that kind of thing, we've all heard about, you know, artists getting priced out of the mar uh, housing markets, even, which yeah. I've seen that my friend, um, Tash, who was in Croatia and like, you know, she moved to Montreal primarily like, you know, cause the rent is cheaper and it's a bit yeah. easier there. And Victoria's a hard go. Um, you know, you kind of need government worker salary. So anyway, so that's kind of my story. Is there anything else that we want to talk about before we... I mean, yeah, how about you? I mean, we haven't talked about your music. I know you, you have a very interesting musical approach, which I really enjoy. It's quite different than mine. Yeah. Um, so maybe well, you my can background, explain that. I, I, growing up in Seattle, like I was there during the, the heyday of the grunge scene, you know, when Nirvana was around and Soundgarden and uh, uh, who else was it? Who else, who else the big band? Pearl Jam, Temple Pearl of the Jam. Dog. Yeah, all those guys are around. <clears throat> so I was a little bit young for it though, so I kind of hit, more the indie wave so right. i started playing bass in, in an indie rock band the called, sub pop kind of era yeah exactly called the binge i was in a band there in seattle and then i've been in other bands as i've kind of moved around north america but that band was i wouldn't say well known in seattle but we did play some pretty big shows the biggest show i played was at a venue that i'm not even sure is around anymore called the tractor tavern where there was maybe 250 people oh yeah that's pretty and good we, we opened for a local band that had been named Willis, but I think because of some copyright issue with uh, the show, remember remember that, like, what you're talking about, Willis? No, I was thinking of Bruce Willis, but. <laughs> <laughs> remember, there was like a catchphrase from one of the 80s sitcoms. Anyway, um, they had to change their name for some contractual reasons. They changed their name to the worst band name in the possible world. It was the Actual Tigers. It's gotta be hey, the worst band I kinda anyway. like that, actually. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm down anyway. with that. <laughs> you don't think it's the worst band name? I'm gonna look them up pretty soon. Well, anyway, we opened for them and um, it was just an awesome experience. It was just like being, it was just like an indescribable high. Yeah. You know, and it makes you understand why so many musicians get ad addicted to drugs, to cocaine and heroin, because you get off stage and you're just floating mm -hmm. on cloud nine. You just like want to continue that high. 
mm-hmm. with substances. So it kind of makes you realize, because it's like, I mean, you have must have experienced this too. It's like an indescribable high mm-hmm. being up on stage and like connecting with hundreds of people through mm-hmm. music. It's it's sort of an indescribable mm-hmm. experience that that um, that I really loved. Yeah. Yeah. And since then, like I've, I've learned a number of, I play guitar and mandolin and banjo and now I'm um, and keyboards. And now I'm learning cello. Yeah. I started uh, taking courses at uh, the conservatory for adult beginning cello. So it's been just like awesome cool. experience. Yeah. Right on. Um, yeah. And I've always liked your collaborative approach to music where I'm, I'm very more focused. I have my band. We have a goal. Yeah. Like we're kind of very, you know, and then you're kind of like, yeah, I invite like 10 people. We'll see who shows up. Everyone will jam it out. I'm like, oh God, that's really making me nervous. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> who are these 10 people? I don't know. I can't do that. Well, my uh, plan and- is to actually spend all night jamming on, uh, on November 3rd on the night of the election because like, oh, I'm, I'm so stressed about American politics that I can't, I don't want to be just home watching computer and looking at my phone and like stressing. I right. want to actually just escape and just doing something creative. And I'm going to be glued to CNN. <laughs> but, well, yeah. It's like 12 pack and CNN <laughs> just all night long. I know it's, it's, um, it's stressful. I remember the last U S election, it, we didn't have the results. It just kind of got worse and worse and worse. And I went to bed about 11 o'clock going like, this doesn't look good. Yeah, and these elections are going to be brutal. the same, the BC election with all the mail in voting, which I, I'm fully supportive of. Yeah. The reality is we're just not going to know the results. You and, think so? Unless it's a, a huge landslide, which is for either, either one of the parties in BC or, or Trump or Biden, yeah. you're not going to know the results. No. And, and mm. the thing with mail-in voting is say in BC, we send out 700,000, but mm-hmm. we don't know how many people are going to respond to those. Right. Maybe only half the people are going to put those back in the mail. Right. And they um, might just show up on, on election day and actually vote in person. Yeah. Or I don't even, I don't even know the specifics of that. I mean, just so. cause you get a mail, just cause you get a mail-in ballot doesn't mean you have to use it, right? You could still show up on election day. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, um, let's wrap up me and you cause we have uh, Richard Zessman coming in here. So let's just Grab a quick drink and that's when it's going to be showing up. Okay. Hi, Richard Zussman. How are you doing? Hey, I'm excellent. How is, are your, you is your last name pronounced Zussman or Zussman? I've always wondered. You're, you're sort of halfway there. Uh, Zussman. Yeah. Uh, my dad used to give me a hard time because for a long time I would say Zussman. Yeah. Uh, and now I've sort of corrected myself. But over the years of doing this, I have heard it every single possible way. So okay. it's, it's Zussman. Okay. okay, good. I don't want to re-record the beginning of this podcast where, where we were calling you Zussman. <laughs> so thanks for being our very first guest. We were just starting a new podcast here, meant to just kind of fill a bit of a gap in the podcast world where we're talking about look, Victoria issues uh, with people kind of our age who are involved in things and want to have a bit more of an open dialogue that's mm-hmm. not the conversation that's happening on social media yeah. and just a bit more casual kind of amongst friends and and we a lot of, know a lot of talented people who, who know a lot of stuff and we want to get subject matter experts. So you're our first guy. So thanks for, yeah, thanks and, for being And here. I love talking politics more than anything else. And I think you guys are right that, you know, the level of engagement we have on social media is very different than the conversations people are having elsewhere. And mm-hmm. I, I think people want to be comfortable talking about politics, right? Mm-hmm. They want to understand how decisions are made all the way from the municipal level to the federal level and how that impacts their lives and people are more engaged, I think, now than ever before in terms of the things that, that matter in their lives from, you know, our environment to affordability all the way up to, you know, systemic racism and, and our cultural shifts that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and all these things play into what is traditionally known as politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, what goes on at the legislature is daunting for a lot of people, I think. It, it seems 
stuffy, but like ultimately the decisions made on a day-to-day basis profoundly impact all our lives. Like this is, you know, these are the conversations we have every day and, and they make differences. And so it matters who you elect. It matters how things work in the legislature at city halls. And and that's what, like, I just, I love talking about it so much and sort of trying to understand why decisions are made the way they're made. And you need to work through issues. I think right now there's a lack of tolerance for people who are trying to work through stuff. Like I went, I got to do my master's degree where I worked through a lot of issues there. And if you (laughs) took some of my opinions before that, I'd be embarrassed about them, but that doesn't mean I was wrong. It just means we're working through them and not everyone's going to have the final answer on all these issues. Sometimes you say things because you just might understand the issue the other day. And, you know, we saw that the other day with, with John Horgan and his colorblindness comment. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting reaction and it's, it was interesting to see him say, you know what, I was wrong about it. And, and I think sometimes we need to accept when people are wrong about things or we're working through issues or, I've often been wrong about my own opinions and you kind of come back and go like, shit, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. And maybe that's a a logical place to start is, is talking about this election and that debate and whether or not you saw that debate as a turning point. Did it move the needle for voters? Yeah, I don't think it has. And we've seen some polls about it, but it did give people a chance to engage with leadership. This campaign is so unique to anything we've ever seen before. Uh, First off, just start with an sheer number of mail-in ballots. Yeah. People are just voting differently. Yeah. You know, for the first time in our province's history, more people will vote not on election day mm-hmm. than an election day, and it's going to be a huge margin mm-hmm. in terms of that. But I think the debate also allowed for an engagement maybe beyond this election cycle. And yes, as you guys know, politics in this province moves fast and things yeah. can adjust over time. But I think it was an introduction for a lot of people to Sonia first to know. Mm-hmm. And she was put into a really, really difficult situation where a week after she got the job as leader of the greens, mm-hmm. she's all of a sudden on a campaign trail. And right. that means a lot in terms of how you get your candidates nominated, how you fundraise, how you get signs up, engage with voters And so it was a massive disadvantage for just traditionally, you know, the media would spend a lot of time leading up to an election profiling opposition leaders Mm -hmm. to give the public an example of who these people are. Well, you know, Sonia Furstin was running a leadership campaign in the midst of a pandemic where she got almost no attention at all. And then she goes into an election campaign where suddenly the main storylines are Wilkinson versus Horgan Mm -hmm. and again, struggles to get attention. And that, I think... She has the building blocks here from that debate in terms of a next election. Yes, the Greens very much are in play in in some writings here in 2020, but this election is focused really around Horgan and whether he will get his majority government Mm -hmm. and what all of that looks like. And now, as, as you mentioned, Matt, the conversations we're having around that sort of instant analysis of comments that are made by leaders and candidates, and that is really sidetracked the last week of the campaign around things like Lori Thronis right. uh, making conversations around contraception, around Jane Thornthwaite making right. sexist comments. I have when Nathan Cullen yesterday, the, the media with him, and it's like, it's not even really an issue. It's more of a he said, she said, yeah. which which is important. I get that as well. But sometimes it's like, well, what about the policy and the substance behind here? And what about what's impacting people in their lives? And I struggle with that because that comes back to the point you said. It, it really, yes. We should be judging the people we want to be our elect officials for what they say and what they value. Yes. 
but people make mistakes. And so often, and we see this predominantly down south with Trump, mm -hmm. right? He like he wants to equate a small mistake to a large mistake, and a mistake's a mistake, and so it's the same. Mm -hmm. So if a politician does something that is overtly transphobic or homophobic consistently over time, and an opponent says something that could be seen as racist or sexist once and apologizes immediately, those aren't the same thing. No. And they shouldn't be judged that way. But political strategists, especially in the trailing side, want you to believe those are the same thing. That uh -huh. you can discredit a leader or a candidate based on one comment. Well, it's not so much that for me. I mean, I see the point you're making, but yeah. <clears throat> I mean, one thing that stood out to me, especially as I, I come from the U.S. We are just talking about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a dual citizen and I follow politics in both countries very closely. The politics in BC is so white, it's so incredibly white. I mean, our leaders are all sort of middle class white people. And um, it's just, it, that's really been, I, I mean, I think that all parties are having a hard time finding people of color to run to. I mean, I know that's been a criticism of certain parties. I know it's been a criticism of the Greens before. But I mean, across the board, I think that's, that's a challenge in, in a province that, um, that, you know, historically politics has been so dominated by white people. I think that Black Lives Matter has brought more attention to these issues in, in this campaign. And, and going back to that debate, it, I thought it was very interesting to hear Sonia Fersino say, we don't know what it's like to be yeah. people of color. We don't know what it's like to have our kids go out and maybe be beaten up by the cops or not make it home. It was refreshing for me to hear that point of view because, uh, you know, the, I mean, what... <laughs> Wilkinson saying that he has a native child named after him. It's like, come, what, come on. It's like, yeah. what the hell? <laughs> and, and, and the disconnect too for him too is when he speaks about having gay people in his family, lesbian people in his family. And I know that's separate from, from racialized issues, but it's sort of this disconnect towards the realities that a lot of people are living. And I think we're, we're shifting slowly towards having more representation in our legislature there are some amazing indigenous candidates running in this provincial election mm -hmm. yeah uh aaron schumahetza and fraser nicola nicole halbauer running in skeena both for the ndp uh, melanie mark is already a cabinet minister she will be sent back to victoria it looks like uh, and then in terms of diversity you know the ndp is well ahead of the others i was just recently looking at numbers where you know, when you look at female candidates, uh, candidates of color, uh, LGBTQ plus candidates, young candidates, the NDP has done a relatively good job. They have more women than men running this time around. So those are things that they are looking towards. And I know Sonia First Know is working on that. And that comes back to the point we were talking about earlier. This election cycle, it was very hard to recruit. It was very hard to get candidates because of the snap election. And they I didn't think have time. Yeah. That's a big goal of the Greens. And the is, pandemic. Is to create some diversity, right? Yeah. I, mean, I just want to go back into the mail-in ballots. How concerned should Victorians be, should British Columbians be, that this election won't be clarified on election night? I don't think very. And, and that's just based on the polls that we're looking at now. There is a substantial gap clearly that has been consistent over weeks now between the NDP uh, and the Liberals. And yes, there will be a number of seats that are decided, but often on election night, the experts who do this and look at the algorithms and look at the polls are able to call seats with, you know, 10, 20, 30% of polls reporting. Uh, and we will get that sort of margin on election night, uh, even if we have half the votes or mail-in ballots. I mean, I just don't know if I trust the polls in BC. I mean, like I was involved in, in the pro rep campaign and yeah. I was following some statisticians and, and some experts on it. And they were just like wildly 
incorrect about the outcome. The so off, like orders of magnitude off. 2017, I think that the polls were, that was the, the big example of polls 2013. being- 2013. Was it 2013? Yeah. The polls being classically wrong and everyone said, that's it, the polls are done. Yeah. But, and, and polling has changed. 2013 was an embarrassment for a lot of pollsters in this <laughs> province and they they all took responsibility for it, really? right? This was where you saw Adrian Dix with mar- massive leads. Right. But the big difference between that time and this time are the trend lines. Okay. You know, we have these long-standing trend lines of John Horgan leading by between 16 and 20 points. The other crucial trend line are around people's personal opinions of the leaders. Mm-hmm. So people believe that John Horgan is the best premier. People believe that he has served the province well during the pandemic. These are things we see in the numbers time and time again. And so... Yes, I know pollsters have struggled, but there are things within those numbers that show that we should have some results. But yes, when it comes down to riding to riding, we have almost no good riding polls in BC, in Canada. It's too expensive to do, it's, yeah, it's, especially now in a short election campaign. So a lot of these amalgamators that people like to visit online... Uh, 338 is the most right, prominent, right. Are, are fun to visit, right. but those numbers don't reflect. They take regional numbers and apply them locally, which you can't do, and, and we'll talk about this in a bit. You know, Oak Bay Gordon Head is a classic example, right, mm-hmm. where it's driven by the popularity in 2013 and 17 of Andrew Weaver, one individual, mm-hmm. and now we see a very popular person in Murray Rankin running for a different party, mm-hmm. the NDP, and amalgamators can't make sense of that. Right. So are you looking forward to election night? Is that stressful? Yeah, is it fun night. for you or is it oh, stressful it. for oh, you? Because this is your analysis is going to be front and center in this election. You're going to have to be doing what you do best. Yeah, and I like this is what you do this job for. <laughs> like I, I love election night more than anything else. And 2017 was really fun. Uh, and 2020 is going to be awesome. And Global BC is going to have a great show. It's just it's we put so much time and effort into doing an election night show because of the questions you're bringing up, Jeremy, like people want to know what to trust. Do they know yeah. that we're going to get results or the results going to be final? We're going to explain all that on election night, how it's going to work with why we won't be able to count the ballots for 13 days after election night for all those mail-in ballots. Yeah. You know, the big reason is they're trying to validate and make sure people don't vote twice. Right. So once mail-in, once show up in person, all right. of that will be a big part of the show and then sort of showing those trend lines and, and where ridings are swinging mm-hmm. that will ultimately lead to the results of the election. Like it's, yeah, sure, it's stressful. And because we want to do a good job. Like I really want to do a good job. And I know people are watching. People in this province care about politics. And so I'm really, really excited though. Like it's going to be Expecting really Expecting a high percentage turnout? I don't think so, but we'll see. Like we're already starting to see some returns like mm-hmm. – 700,000 plus mail-in ballot requests. Right. That's, That's a, a big number. A um, yeah. We know that for the first few days of the advanced polls, high turnout as well. But again, we don't know how many people will show up on election night. The other factor that we're not talking a lot about is for the first time, we're having a Saturday election. And Elections BC right. decided to do that because of voter turnout. They felt like yeah. it would encourage more people to vote. They didn't have to uh, find time during their work day or picking up their kids from school and going to soccer. And so we'll see if that, they were hoping that a Saturday election would mean a boost in turnout huh. 
obviously this election is not the one to really test it because there's so many other things that are changing Mm -hmm. more advanced polling days. So, you know, I encourage everyone obviously to vote. If you're listening now, you probably are a voter, but if you're not, you should go out and you should cast your ballot and have your voice heard. But I I am a little bit worried that turnout won't be as high for COVID-19 reasons and all those different factors. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Well, we wanted to dive into just South Island riding stuff just for fun, just to go a bit of pure speculation. So I printed (laughs) out for you, kind of the last, you know, who's running in every riding and, and, the, and the who got what votes. And these are all interesting ridings. You know, you have strong NDP, you have strong Greens in every riding, and often actually you have strong Liberals in ridings. Like we had a Liberal MLA, Ida Chong in Oak Bay for quite a while. Um, so there, we, have, we have five ridings here, and I guess we're going to hold you to it if you feel <laughs> like, uh, I mean, maybe we can all kind of guess and just go through one by one and see which ridings we think the Greens are able to take here. And how this might play out is just a unique microcosm in BC. It's completely different than the lower mainland and, and rural BC. Or, or I wouldn't say, I would say it's not a microcosm. I would say it's like an outlier. Don't, wouldn't you say? Outlier. Okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, that's the thing is that like the, some of these writings here that are close between Green and NDP, we don't really see that anywhere on the mainland, do we? No, we don't. The places, the one may not, yeah, the one may be Nelson Creston. Okay. So we'll see how the Greens do there. Mm-hmm. They, again... With the way the election's going, that's a place where the Greens have often felt like they could have this breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are a few in Vancouver where they run second, but it's still a pretty wide margin mm-hmm. with the NDP. Uh, and then the one to watch in Vancouver, I think, is West Vancouver Sea to Sky. Okay. The one that includes just parts of West Van, but really right. Squamish, Whistler, Pemberton. That's Jordan Sturdy's the liberal that holds that seat, but the Greens have a really good candidate there. Who, who remind me who the candidate um, is? So he lives in Whistler. Jeremy, I think it's Valiette, I think is the candidate's name. Uh, and uh, Sonia Firstino went there for his nomination. Okay. Uh, and uh, the Greens, Dana Taylor finished second there last time and basically did not run a campaign at all. Okay. And so the Greens have some optimism there. Okay. But. That's the big question about larger discussion for another day about yeah, yeah. the green brand and the relevancy of the greens and can they be a provincial party? Mm. But right now, clearly the focus is on those three seats they hold. Mm-hmm. I, by hold, I mean one in 2017. Clearly Andrew Weaver became an independent, yeah. but that was a seat won by the greens. And then whether they can start making some inroads you know, in some of these Victoria seats that are strong NDP seats but that have we seen at municipal levels and even federally right. have some voters who think green. So let's let's get into it then on South yeah. Island. Do you see the Greens holding on to those three seats? So obviously the biggest, one of the most interesting ridings in the entire province is Oak Bay Gordon Head. Right. And uh, if you're interested, I have a story I've done on Global News uh, profiling that as one of the swing ridings, so you can go watch that. And I think... Part of this, normally we would never be talking about a riding that was won by 8,000 votes in the last election. Right. Like that's a massive that's victory. Yeah. But from everyone I've spoken to in the riding and the candidates, a lot of those votes are Andrew Weaver votes, not yeah. Green votes. Yeah. And you have in Murray Rankin, this former MP, lives in Oak Bay. It is probably the most educated electorate of any riding in the province. Really? Yeah. It's a lot of public servants, Mm -hmm. former public servants, 
university students who are often engaged, although again, with the pandemic and a lot of people learning from home, we don't know how that factors in. Professors. Yeah, professors, all of that. People who follow politics. And people who follow politics are often more likely to vote for a candidate than they are a party. Interesting. They, they understand what the dynamics look like. Mm. And I think a lot of voters will be thinking, mm-hmm. well, I want representation around the cabinet table. And it looks like based on the polls, John Horgan's going to become premier. If John Horgan becomes premier, Murray Rankin's going to become a minister. Mm-hmm. And that could mean that my community is serviced by a minister, which we know makes a difference because they can go to the cabinet and ask for money for their communities, or they can have conversations that impact their communities. And so I think voters will be thinking that way. I think Nicole Duncan, uh, school trustee, is just getting an introduction to politics. And it comes back to the stuff we were talking about earlier, that there just isn't a lot of time to grow name recognition. Mm -hmm. And Roxanne Helm, the liberal, is in the same boat there too, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Relative unknown, a lawyer. Yes, she has lots of friends in the community. She's grown up here, spent her whole life here. But that only gets you so far Mm. when you're going to voters who probably haven't met any of them. It's the only riding also in the province that has been represented by a social credit, conservative, green, NDP, and liberal MLA at one point. Yeah, in in the last couple of decades. Wow. And and yeah, just since the 1970s. It's the only one in the entire province. Yeah, very much in play for anybody. So I'm I'm getting a sense that you're going to, if I had to put you down, you're going to say... It's going to be ranking might come out ahead on that one. Yeah, and I think it's going to be really close. And But I think that's where the trends seem to be indicating. And, and Nicole Duncan, the key for her there is tapping to those green votes and understanding are those green votes or are those Weaver votes. And that's who they are going to and calling and, and socially distance visiting <laughs> to remind them, we need you this time. Mm-hmm. And the question is, do they have the uh, man the man and woman power to make those calls to reach those voters and to engage uh before election day considering a lot of people have already voted mail-in and and well i was gonna ask you what is the role of andrew weaver in this in this election i mean he's, he's gone rogue he's he's what do you make of him these days i have spoken to him a lot over the last few weeks uh i think he's a guy struggling with his own political identity okay and I think he's looking to understand what his legacy was. And, you know, we saw this video with him and John Horgan that's been posted right. on the NDP website. So bizarre. bizarre. Totally bizarre. Uh, does not look sort of Weaver sitting in his studio wearing some gloves and just having a chat with his old pal John. And what were the gloves? The, I, were they making a model or something? <laughs> the NDP want this to seem like an endorsement, but Weaver has said he's not going to endorse anyone. But we know... He's, you know, he, he likes Murray Rankin. They served together when Murray was an MP and Andrew was the MLA. They did a lot of community events together. Him and Roxanne Helm went to high school together, so they've known each other a long time. But he's not stumping for the green. And he's not stumping for Nicole Duncan at all. I but think why? he barely I mean, even I, knows her. What's, what's weird about this is that, you know, as I've watched this green movement happen on the island, yeah. I mean, he, he's been the principal mover of that. He built that movement, and it now just seems like he's, he's, he's sabotaging his own movement. It's a great point, and I think a lot of people in the Greens feel that that's what's happening because uh, he is a supporter. He wants John Horgan to continue to be the premier. Uh, yes, I, I'm sure he would like some Greens to continue to win, but he almost feels detached from the political process. Uh, it's well told that uh, him and Sonia Firstino had a very big falling out, which ultimately but led... so what, though? It's like it's got to, you know... And, and that's the question, right? How much do egos 
come into this and how much does policy come into mm-hmm. this? And, and there is a belief from Weaver that the NDP can tackle a lot of the climate issues that he was concerned about and it doesn't have to be the Greens. And so therefore, if you're an environmentally conscious voter, you can vote NDP and feel comfortable with but that. He, but the fact that he was at loggerheads with Horgan so much over LNG, sure. it just surprises me because, I mean, if we've looked at, at the support that the NDP has given to fossil fuels, yeah. I mean, Weaver was apoplectic about that. I don't understand why he thinks that would change in an NDP majority. And it, and it won't change. And that's a project. And so one side of the coin is maybe the decision's been made that, yes, we realize LNG's moving forward. There's nothing we can do about it. But you're exactly right. It is very hard to square that circle because we don't have the full admission targets yet for Clean BC. Right. We And with projections of LNG Canada going on board, there's no way to meet those emission targets. No. <laughs> so if you are an environmentally conscious voter, your vote should go green. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pandemic precedes all of that. And yes, I know there is a way to get through the pandemic while also being hyper-focused on our environment, but people's issues are way more immediate. And that's the issue that parties focused on climate change have always, you know, have, yeah. have recently faced, right? Is right. Are we talking about solutions that we need in three months from now? Mm-hmm. Or are we talking about solutions we need decades from now for our kids and our kids' kids? And populist parties like the NDP and the Liberals are hyper-focused on here's a thousand bucks into your bank account. Here's a rent freeze. Whereas the Greens are talking bigger. What does populism mean to you? It means pocketbook issues that are addressed in the short term, often with the um, avoidance of solving some of the larger uh, long-term issues that we face. Yeah, to broad appeal. Easy solutions to broad appeal, speaking $1,000 to everyone works across party lines. PST cuts, you know, the things that you see dialed up in press releases that... uh, aren't traditionally part of a larger conversation that, mm-hmm. and you know, we need to fix things like universal childcare, our education system, the environment is, is key, but on the campaign trail, people are trying to absorb a lot of information very quickly yeah. from broad sources. And often it's these competition at ICBC thousand dollars in my bank account, rent freeze is coming. Those are the things that people remember along with the individual, I like John Horgan. I don't like Andrew Wilkinson. I do like Andrew Wilkinson. I don't like John Horgan. Those are the things that circulate in people's heads, most people, when they consider voting. And then there are the the rare voters who are engaged listening to these conversations, having conversations with family and friends, and, and analyzing how are we best served. That's what I always struggle with. With millions of votes cast, Yours is just one. And mm-hmm. so what role do you have in the larger picture? When Sonia Furstenow talks, we're better served than a minority government. As one voter, how do I control that? Yeah. Yeah. Like what if the NDP wipe out the liberals and all of these traditional liberal seats in Metro Vancouver and I voted green on the island and all of a sudden they win eight seats on the island with this hope that yes, we're going to get a minority government, but the liberals are wiped out on Metro and now all of a sudden the NDP have a majority even without those green seats. So it's hard. If you're a voter thinking I want a minority government, how you decide that is nearly impossible. Well, I wanted, I want pro rep is what I want. (laughs) Well, I think that conversation is over. That's a different podcast. That's a different podcast. And, but I believe that part of the problem with our system is that conversation was, um, 
muted by the fact the NDP were looking at poll numbers saying we're on a way to a majority next mm-hmm. time around. We don't want proportional representation. Well, the same thing what happened with the federal liberals, right? Yes. Let's let's actually not get into it. But I, I, I want to ask, yeah, yeah. I want to ask just really quickly yeah. to keep this going. Do you think, do you see Adam Olson and Sonia keeping their seats? And I, I want to talk particularly about Saanich North and the Islands, where in 2013 we had three candidates, each got 10,000 votes. So you do have a strong liberal presence there with the, with the Sydney and the demographic there. A strong NDP presence. Uh, do you see Adam keeping that one? Yeah, I think it's a great seat because it has been so close and it has been a sw- flip. And I think of the three seats the Greens won in 2017, it's the most likely, I would say, to stay green. Mm-hmm. Adam has done a really outstanding job in that community, connecting the Gulf Islands, connecting Saanichton, connecting North Saanich and Sydney. Like, he has done a really outstanding Indigenous job. Indigenous connections, very strong there. Yeah, and, and Sonia's done a great job in her community as well. But I think Zeb King is a well-known counsellor in that community, but... I've been I've been told the NDP are running a sort of John Horgan heavy campaign. I've in the seen riding. that with the signage up there. Yeah. yeah, and and that's one of the things, right? Is trying to attach you to the fact that you can have a representative as part of government. Uh, but I think Adam has done a really effective job. So we'll, we'll like that's a really close one. If we start seeing this swing where voters say I want a representative in government. We could very well see that go NDP. I think the Liberals are a long ways away from where Stephen Roberts was. He's now running the third straight time. I still think, though, he's going to have a hard time. The trend lines indicate he's going down, and I think that probably will continue. And and in Couch and Valley, that's going to be really interesting as well. This this election is a lot about name recognition because of the short term, and you're seeing a record-breaking number of municipal politicians running across the board, yeah. uh, especially for the NDP. And, and Rob Douglas is an elected official in the Cowichan Valley, and that helps. You know, Voters are trying. They recognize that name. And yes, Sonia had an excellent performance in the debate. She's spending time in that community. But Duncan especially, the population base in the riding, has historically been union heavy NDP town. So we'll see what happens. But I think the people of Cowichan Valley know they would be well served having a leader in the legislature and Sonia first and own, even if the party is reduced to one or two seats, uh, there still is a possibility there to have an impact on the conversations that are had in the legislature. Right. So final riding, just so we can cross it off our list, is Victoria Swan Lake, which is another, or sorry, not, Victoria Beacon Hill. Victoria Beacon Hill. I want to go Victoria Beacon Hill because I think that is one, you know, when I look at what happened in 2017, you know, Kaylin Harris, 9,000 votes. There's a lot of votes when you're running against someone as popular as Carol James. And now, you know, the slate has been wiped clean here. And Mm. I think this is another one completely up for grabs, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, this is one that the Greens always thought they could break through in this riding, you know, uh, Joanne Roberts did really well here federally against Murray Rankin. Uh, there are a lot of green voters in James Bay and a lot of other prominent neighborhoods in that riding. The challenge here is going to be, again, that conversation. This is also, in parts of this riding, a really informed electorate. Um, value-based voters, you know, connected to the environment, connected to child care, schooling issues, like these things matter. Uh Grace Lord does not have the name recognition clearly that Carol James, one of the most popular politicians our province has seen in generation, does, but uh, she is sort of tapping into some of those concerns people have around childcare and education. And again, it comes down to the fact that if you believe John Horgan is going to form government, then you are more prone to vote NDP in this riding. And you know, there's been a lot of weird conversations going on in that. There was talk for a while that Ben Isaac 
was going to run for the Greens, uh, but that the party was concerned about, you know, some of the things that Ben has done on council. Uh, so there have been some back and forth about what this looks like, but I, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Jen Nielsen and I think that's going to be the concern she runs into is name recognition. But I, again, we'd have to see some really different trends, uh, Vancouver Island wide, the greens are not doing as well in the, in the polls as they did last time, but it is one of those ones where all the factors, no incumbents, informed voters, issues-based voters, we could see something, but I would think that Grace Lore and the NDP are, are factoring this in as one of theirs as part of their equation to, to forming enough seats to form a majority. Is there less consideration about the environment right now? And I know you got to wrap up soon to let us know with the, with the issues that have emerged so much lately around housing, homelessness, uh, the opioid crisis, which have become so yeah. big for British Columbia childcare. Um, and you know it's particularly in, in in Victoria where we see a lot of people camping in parks right now, which is a problem. Which is a problem. People are concerned, and and they're concerned for these folks and want to get them housing. And I think that's in a way taken away a little bit from the environment movement, yeah. where where it's maybe become the number one issue. Yeah, and I think number one issue across the board is COVID nineteen and mm-hmm. just understanding. And and that's the big again. People are grappling with this. Do you really want to change in leadership when we're in the midst of a pandemic? And that's what people are struggling with. And I think people have a really hard time um, detaching Bonnie Henry from the government. (laughs) And the reality is Dr. Bonnie Henry is going to be there no matter what happens (laughs) on election day. She will keep serving the province. She is nonpartisan. She is completely nonpartisan. But people struggle to detach that. And I think also people don't like change in the time of crisis. And so that is in people's mind. And then the larger questions of, can I get a childcare spot harder and harder in this community? Schools are getting filled up in our communities. Uh, You know, the education minister, and we'll talk Victoria Swan Lake in a minute, but that's, you know, Victoria Swan Lake is just an extension and Rob Fleming is the education minister. And I think parents here are worried about overcrowded classrooms. We're seeing portables, you know, at my kid's school, we've now seen a few portables pop up that weren't happening before your kid's school (laughs) too. (laughs) And, and that factors in into the way people decide things. But I think just because of all of those issues that are in front and center and ICBC is one we haven't mentioned yet. And yes, it's gone total side burner, but it's another one of those things, right? Like we're going through huge overhauls and every year you go and pay that bill and you see it go up and up and up and up. And it's like, well, what's government going to do about this? And so it's those things that often outweigh the larger issues of the environment, uh, cutting down our emissions, making decisions, around how we want to invest, how we want to build, and, and all of those are important factors too. And yeah, and, and thanks, Richard. And the last question I had for you is that we've done a lot of time, uh, spent a lot of time looking forward towards the election, yeah. but I just wanted to talk for a minute about looking backwards. I mean, BC hasn't had that many minority governments over the last several decades. It's yeah. been unusual. What's the legacy of this CASA, the confidence and supply yeah. arrangement, going to be? What was achieved? What was not achieved? What's your assessment of it? Yeah, I think there's two stories there, right? Did the Greens get enough out of CASA and the decisions that were made and and those big energy projects, right? Mm -hmm. So in the agreement, there were conversations about Site C, Trans Mountain, and LNG. Mm -hmm. And now we're looking at a future where all of those projects are going to move ahead, whereas the Greens did not want any of those. Right. Um, Part of the conversation with CASA was uh, electoral reform. We're not going to get that. Right. You know, yes, Andrew Weaver chalks up clean BC as a victory, but I think many of those elements would have happened in the legislature anyways. Uh. 
And then it's a larger question around the civility of our politics. And do we want a place where we can have conversations across traditional party lines or do we want a place that becomes increasingly partisan? How can we help that on this show? Cross-party line conversations, intelligent conversations. You know, we want to have diversity of guests, but any other quick elements? Yeah, like I think part of it is um, trying to really understand our electoral system as it exists and the way that we can take out some of that partisanship. And I think conversations like this help. I, I struggle with that because the system is built to be adversarial, mm-hmm. right? You have a chamber where the parties are two sword lengths apart for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. This is a, an old school time when you would duel to determine who governs. And so that adversarial system still exists. And yes, there is room for collaboration, but ultimately it is about control and decision-making and, We need to work within that system for now to better feel comfortable saying my opponent had a good idea because right now politicians are very uncomfortable saying that. Good point. I like that. That's a good spot to wrap up. If we we can do that. I know you're a busy day, uh, Richard. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you on election night. And and thanks for the time, Richard. Yeah, tune in Global News. It's going to be lots and lots of fun. We have lots of cool things for you. Thanks for the time. Joining us today on the Best Coast Political Podcast. This is our inaugural podcast. Hope you'll stick with us in episodes to come. We're hoping to release a couple of episodes a month. Want to thank our guest, Richard Zussman, and Matt Dell, for hosting us today. We'll see you next time.